Hi, Gary Zacharias with The Apologist Bookshelf. There are some authors and some books I just take great delight in. One of them is J. Warner Wallace, who's the author of Cold Case Christianity. It's such a good book, and J. Warner Wallace is an amazing individual. It's been fun to watch his career. Uh, he's come to our church. He's come to my apologetics class a long time ago when he was just kind of getting started, and uh, what a warm, wonderful person. So it's been a delight to see how well he's done. This is his first book that really uh, broke through, Cold Case Christianity, and the subtitle, A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospels. Excellent book. I want to do chapter 12, Were They Corroborated? So what's he talking about here? Well, first, let me give you a, a few quotes that he starts the chapter with. Here's Albert Einstein. The word God is for me nothing more than the expression and product of human weaknesses. The Bible, a collection of honorable but still primitive legends which are nevertheless pretty childish. No interpretation, no matter how subtle, can, for me, change this. And then there's Robert Ingersoll. He's a very well-known agnostic in the 19th century. Is there an intelligent man or woman now in the world who believes in the Garden of Eden story? If there is, strike here, tapping his forehead, and you will hear an echo. Something is for rent. How about Bill Maher? We all know him. Uh, he's uh, been on TV a lot. I think that the people who think God wrote a book called the Bible are just childish. So this is the way he starts the chapter. I like that. Start with what people say opposed to your viewpoint, and then you've got to scramble to try to contradict what they're saying. He said, you know, this is now Wallace. Christian scripture isn't just a collection of proverbs or commandments. They're in the New Testament, but the Bible is a claim. It's It's got a special claim about history. It says that something really did happen in the past in a particular way, at a particular time, with a particular result. With a particular result. So he's, he's saying, you know, these are not legends or childish stories if the accounts are true. They may have some miracles in there. So he says, no doubt the people that reject the supernatural are going to doubt uh, people who say they saw something miraculous. And he says, it's not surprising the skeptics would want miraculous claims to be corroborated. So he said, let's look at the gospel accounts. He said, can you corroborate what's in there? He said, well, some of it is internal. In other words, you can take evidence inside the gospel documents themselves that are consistent with the claims then he says some of the corroboration is external. That's evidence outside the Gospels that verify the claims of the text. So he said uh, there are a lot of ways that you can look at internal evidence, but he said there are two areas. He said that really interests him because he's interviewed so many witnesses as a homicide detective. So this is his first big subsection. This is going to be looking at the inside the gospel. So he said the gospel writers provided unintentional eyewitness support. Now, what does he mean by that? He said, you know, he's remember, he's a cop, so he's looked at all sorts of witness statements and interviewed them himself. He said no single witness saw every single detail. He said reliable eyewitness accounts are never completely parallel and identical. They often see different pieces of the same puzzle, so they unintentionally support and they complement each other. And then you come up with what the whole picture was. And he said when he first read the gospel accounts, he said he was really struck by the 
support that each provided for the other gospel writers. He said it was it was like puzzling them together, like you do with independent eyewitnesses. So he said when one gospel eyewitness described an event and left out a detail that might have raised a question for people, the question was answered by another gospel writer. He said, who, by the way, would sometimes leave out a detail that was provided by the first one. So what does he mean by that? Well, he gives you a lot of examples. And uh, it goes by the term undesigned coincidences. I've heard it called that. And so he said, here's some examples in the, in the, that makes him believe these are eyewitness accounts. So, for example, Matthew 8. It says, the people waited till evening to bring people to Jesus people that needed healing. Why would they wait till evening? If they knew he was healing people, why wouldn't they hustle and bring them there? Well, Matthew doesn't say, but if you go to Mark 1 and Luke 4, it's the same story. But what do they add? They add information that it was the Sabbath, and you wouldn't take somebody on the Sabbath. That's not according to Jewish law. You had to wait till the end of Sabbath. Here's another one. Matthew 14 says, Herod says to his servants that he thinks Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, why, who would know that? How would they know this? Matthew doesn't say, but in Luke 8 and Acts 13, we find out that many of Jesus' followers were in Herod's household, so they heard him say that. And that's what Matthew reports. Here's another one, Luke 23. Pilate says to Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus says, yes. And so you think, well, wait a minute, if that's true if if Pilate believes that he would have Jesus put to death because you can only have one king in the Roman Empire so Pilate does not find a charge against Jesus even though he claims to be a king why not well you've got to read the other uh, gospel writer John John 18 he says Jesus reports to Pilate yes I'm a king but my kingdom is not of this world so Pilate goes oh, okay I don't worry about that then you're off the hook so he just fills a lot of examples of this, and I won't do all of them, but, but just a couple more. Matthew 4, Jesus is calling the disciples, and it says he's walking around, and he sees Simon and Andrew, and they're casting a net, and he says to them, follow me. Boom, they leave their nets, and they just trot off and follow him. And Wallace says, that's it? Jesus walks up and says, follow me, and they drop everything? Who would do that? How would they even know who Jesus was or anything about him? Why would they be willing to walk away from their jobs, their livelihood? And that's Matthew 8. He says, you know, if Matthew's account was the only one, that's a real puzzle. But he said, look at what we hear in Luke. It says there's a crowd and Jesus was preaching and he's over by the boats and he gets in one of the boats at Simon's and has him put out to sea and out in the lake. And he says, let down your nets. And, they, and Simon says, well, we haven't caught anything. And when they do, go ahead and put the nets down. They catch a ton of fish. And uh, it says, amazement had seized Simon and his companions. So then Jesus says, follow me. And they do. Okay, so now we know the disciples didn't just jump in with Jesus on a whim. Matthew was telling how they were called, but Luke was telling us a little more detail. So Luke uh, says, oh, okay, the disciples heard Jesus preach. They saw the miracle of the catch of fish. And then, returning to the shore, then Jesus said, follow me. Well, here's one more. Uh, Jesus is being hit in Matthew 26 when he's on trial. And uh, they slap him, and they spit on him, and beat him, and they say, prophesy, you Christ. Who's the one who hit you? 
that seems like an odd question. If somebody hits you in the face and says, who hit you, you'd, you're watching them. You'd say, you did. But look in the book of Luke 22. They have Jesus, and what do they do to him? As they beat him, they blindfold him. So you go, oh, okay. So Matthew's narrative makes more sense once you read Luke's account that Jesus was blindfolded. So Wallace spends a lot of time on that. He thinks that is big proof that this, these are eyewitness accounts because they're, each one is reporting a portion of the story, and you have to put them all together. He gives other exa uh, examples of these uh, coincidences or these uh, joining of stories. I've heard them called also interlocking gospels. And so I won't do those, but it's like the feeding of the 5,000. That's another good example of it. I'll skip over that. So it says, uh, let me go to the next section here. So what else does the internal evidence look like to make people realize it was eyewitness reporting? Well, the gospel writers got their names correct. What does that mean? Well, it says, what if, what if you wrote, um, let's say you wrote 500 years from now and you make up stories about this time period. You know, the popularity of names changes, doesn't it? I mean, think about Adolf. Adolf used to be perfectly okay to name people, and then World War II came along, and it's not so popular anymore. So were the writers of the Gospels actually familiar with life in first century Palestine? Yeah. Uh, Richard Bauckham has a book out, and he examined all sorts of data about recorded names that they've discovered in the Jewish area of Palestine between 330 B.C. and A.D. 200. And when Bauckham examined, examined all the names that were covered by a man named Tal Ilan, he found that the New Testament narratives had just about the exact same percentages found in all the documents that this guy had come up with. In other words, names like Simon, that was hugely popular back then, or Joseph, um, the women, many of the women had the name Mary or Salome. So the top Jewish men's names and the top Jewish female women's names that is reported by people outside the gospel and reported in the gospels overlaps. It says if the gospel writers were just guessing about these names, they sure did guess well. So they got the, and by the way, the names in Palestine were different. The top names for people in Palestine and the top Jewish men's names in G Egypt were different. So how did they get the right percentage of those names right? You know, Simon or Joseph or whatever it is, Mary or Salome. So that sounds like it's a very uh, good proof of eyewitness reporting. So how about from the outside? What's some external reporting? Uh, are the Gospels corroborated as true from the outside in by the testimony of witnesses, even though they were not Christians, and they may not even have believed the testimony of the Gospel writers? Yes. So here, here we go. Here are some of them. Josephus lived around 37 to 100 A.D., and he talked about the death of John the Baptist. He mentioned the execution of James. In fact, he even called James the brother of Jesus, and that's all he said, as if everybody would know that. And then in a third passage, he described Jesus as a wise man. And uh, so we will, I'll skip over that one, except that in the section, I won't read it, it's a long paragraph, but you can conclude from that that Jesus lived, he was a wise and virtuous teacher, had wonder power of some kind, he was condemned, crucified, and he had followers who reported that he appeared to them after his death, and he was believed by many to be the Messiah. 
Now, Josephus isn't saying he believed him, but he's reporting it. Then there's a man named Thallus, lived 5 AD to 60 AD. Now, only about 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion, he was a Samaritan historian. And we don't have his writings. We have somebody who's quoting a passage, and it talks about the darkness during the crucifixion. So says Thallus did not say the darkness was due to the super to, to the crucifixion, supernatural crucifixion, but he does say that Jesus was crucified at the time there was this darkness. Then there's Tacitus, famous Roman historian, A.D. 56 to 117. He's a trusted historian. People don't uh, deny that. Now, he talks about the Christians at the time period there. He corroborated, again, I won't read it, but corroborated that Jesus lived in Judea. He was crucified, and he had followers who were persecuted for their faith in him. So I'm going to go faster over some of these others. Mara Bar Serapian, he described Jesus as a wise and influential man who died for his beliefs. Phlegon. Same time period, roughly uh, late 80s up to 140 AD. He mentioned the darkness around the crucifixion. The Jewish Talmud, those are the writings and discussions of the rabbis that dates to the 5th century, but they discuss information from the 1st and 2nd century, and many of those writings reference Jesus. One says, one part of the Talmud says, Jesus practiced magic and led Israel astray. Isn't that interesting? Again, they're not buying into who Jesus is, but they're admitting that he lived and that he performed some amazing things. And there are other passages that come from the Talmud, so I will skip over that one. How about archaeology? That's another external corroboration. Does it back up the Gospels? Yeah. Quirinius, uh, that was reported in Luke to have been a governor, and that seems to have worked out well. Archaeology corroborates the existence of him as a governor in the time of that census that Luke records. Lysanias, Luke mentions a tetrarch. The Pool of Bethesda says for a long time nobody could find anything about that pool. I mean, after all, the Romans smashed Jerusalem in 70 AD, but in 1888, they found the remains of the Pool of Bethesda and they found five porticos, just as John had mentioned. So, oh yeah, the other thing is Luke got all sorts of governmental names and uh, the, the, the right names for the leaders of different cities. He got that right. They found the Pool of Siloam that was mentioned. Pontius Pilate has been corroborated. The custom of crucifixion has been uh, shown. People thought, oh, if you got crucified, they wouldn't put you in a, a nice burial place. Uh, you'd be thrown into a common grave. But Jesus got a proper burial. We know that, at least that it was possible, because in, in 1968, they found the remains of a crucifixion victim in a proper Jewish tomb. So these kinds of things really back back people up uh, who believe in the Bible and believe in the, the truth of the New Testament and all. So I will, uh, and, he, and he, point out the, he points out at the end of the chapter, archaeology can't confirm every gospel detail, he says, but what we're doing here in this book, he says, is to create a circumstantial case. And he said, each piece of evidence by itself doesn't prove the case entirely. What you do with circumstantial cases, you have multiple lines of evidence, and all of the individual pieces point to the same conclusion. That's called abductive reasoning. And he said, uh, the most reasonable inference from that evidence is that the Gospels are reliable 
and that they are first century and that they're done by eyewitnesses. So I really do like uh, J. Warner Wallace. Anything by him is wonderfully well-written. Uh, get on his uh, email list. He, he sends out all sorts of email, good information. So thank you to Jim Wallace for producing such good work, and thank you for being part of this podcast.